Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Yeah, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Martha Terrace, who is the chairman of the Department of uh, Urology at the Medical College of uh, Georgia. Um, she is, uh, did her urology residency at Stanford and fellowship at Stanford. And then I met Martha actually 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago at, uh, at Stanford while she was on faculty uh, there. And uh, she's been the chairman at uh, the Medical College of, uh, of Georgia now almost uh, 15, 20 years or more than 20 years. How I've been here been for chairman? 20, for a little over 20 years, but uh, yeah. chair, chair for eight. Eight, I see. All right, well, thank you so much for, for doing this. Uh, when, when this uh, coronavirus epidemic passes, we'll, we'll have to bring you here in person uh, when it all is uh, safe. So thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Harris. So um, as Dr. Branham mentioned, um, you know, one thing that, you know, because we have so many residents uh, listening, we'd love to hear your uh, kind of just a little bit of um, background as to what brought you to this point. Um, and then also, I wanted to kind of gauge your uh, opinion on the current environment that medical st or medical students are dealing with with regards to applying into urology. Um, see what you thought about the virtual sub eye experience. What you thought about uh, you know capping applications for urology applicants, and um, you know overall, what do you think we should do with the match? So, if you don't mind, um, just giving. Uh, just us a little taste of kind of what brought you here and then any anything anything that you uh, any um, you know uh, advice you can give for the medical students who also are popping in and listening uh, would be great. Sure um, thanks so much so um, career path wise you know the, you have to make a decision and most of us make this decision fairly early in residency where we're going to do an academic path or not the question is, what do you do with that? Do you want to be, um, you know, the productive researcher? Do you want to be the great teacher in the OR? Do you want a leadership position? And, and you really have to decide, you, you can't be great at all of those, or you can, but you, you, you have to have a one as a priority. And, um, you know, I was on the faculty at Stanford, which is an amazing institution, great resources, beautiful part of the country. And if you look at my CV, you say, why in the heck did she go from, from Stanford to Medical College of Georgia? And, you know, at Stanford, there's a Nobel laureate on every corner, right? So you, you it's very hard to make your name at, uh, at an institution like that. Whereas it's, it's the little fish, big C, big fish, little C sort of mm -hmm. question. So that's one that I think junior faculty members or residents sort of thinking where they're going to go for an academic position ultimately should consider. I mean, what are the options for upward mobility if you want a leadership position? Sure. And um, I think that's one of the things that, that um, you know, got me where I am today. Sure. Um, what was your other question? So the oh, for med other, students at this match, yeah. yeah. So I guess um, kind of your opinion on what, you know, with the current environment of uh, canceling uh, sub-internships, um, you know, what, what kind of advice do you have for medical students? What do you think uh, the caps should be on applications? How do you feel about the virtual sub-I as an option? Um, yeah, well, the virtual sub-I is going to be better than no sub-I, right? <laughs> so we're all working on... Um, taking videos of uh, our conferences and things like that, just like you're doing right now, to um, get our program's name out there, have something that um, uh, students can see, you know, the good things about our program that they are not gonna get to see because they don't, didn't do a visiting rotation or even an in-person interview. I mean, you can't tell that Augusta is a great town and all the residents own their own homes Right. it's cheap to live here and you park once and you can get to all the hospitals. They're all connected. Mm -hmm. You know, there's those physical things that you get out of the visiting rotations and the interviews 
are right. going to be missing. Um, and so it's up to us programs to, to inform the students. So that's on us as programs, not on the students. Right. Um, and I understand that the ACGME is going to put out a position statement here in a couple of weeks, um, informing us all of what their take is as far as allowing visiting rotations and allowing in-person interviews. So we're going to have some marching orders come out soon, and then we'll know how, how to cope with those. Gotcha. As far as medical students are concerned, um, I'm not in favor of a cap. That's an unpopular opinion um, because I'm at a small program. Um, and we in the South, we have a lot of medical schools that don't have urology programs. And I don't know how those students are going to um, be able to, they're not going to have good advice, uh, especially without a visiting rotation on. Right. Um, where to apply, you know, what is their range of programs as far as competitiveness that they should apply to. And you've got the, the folks that maybe didn't match last year or people that are foreign medical grads. You know, I think those people will be hurt by a cap. Mm -hmm. I think your standard allopathic senior U.S. medical student, you could cap. You know, if you had a good advisor there was a good urology program at their school, then, then, then they could be advised and there could be an, a, a cap then. But if you apply it to them and not the rest of the people, it's unfair. So mm -hmm. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of caps, but I, I think we should just drop the price. Um, yeah. Everybody says, oh, it's so expensive, but um, just drop the price of applying to more schools. And then um, anyway, right. uh, that, that's my opinion. It's not a popular one, though. No, I'm, I'm, I hear you. It's very difficult. I think I, I, I come from one of those programs where we didn't have a urology department and um, you, know, you kind of have to make a name for yourself. And in that same vein, you have to apply to a lot of programs, but it's kind of difficult now where you have this situation where we're not allowed to showcase ourselves with sub eyes and then you want to also cap. Um, so it's very, it's, it's, it's going to be very difficult in terms of the match though. Do you feel any one way or another about moving the match um, itself? Um, I think this year it will be moved forward a bit just because things are going to be running behind. Um, the step tests were postponed too. And, you know, I think, think we will be anywhere from two to six weeks later in the year next year getting the match done. But that's just a guess. The SAU will meet immediately after the ACGME releases those, um, the Society of Academic Urologists who run the match mm -hmm. uh, with the AUA. Um, they will meet immediately after the ACGME um, releases their verdict on what's going to happen mm -hmm. and come up with a plan for the urology match. So we should know what the official plan is here in another two or three weeks. Gotcha. Okay. Um, well, thank you for all that. With that said, um, please, um, everyone, uh, thank you for joining us. I'll, I'll kind of give it to you, um, Dr. Terrace, and once you're over, we'll, we'll kind of transition to the case. Um, and if anyone has any questions, please feel free to place them. This will be a very interactive. Just put them in the chat and we'll go over them with Dr. Terrace. So thank you again uh, for being with us. Sure. Can you see my screen? Yep. Okay, great. Sure. All right, let's get started. I'm going to talk to you about salvage lymph node dissection for recurrent prostate cancer. I'm going to start out with a case. This is a patient of mine. He presented to me as a healthy 63-year-old. Um, he had had a prostate cancer on biopsy uh, for a PSA of 4.3, showing uh, Gleason 4 plus 4 in 7 of 15 cores in 2008. He was treated with androgen deprivation therapy for a short period of time and brachytherapy at that time. This was all outside. His PSA natured at uh, undetectable levels and was undetectable in 2014 when his PSA was found to be 0.2. It continued to slowly rise, um, 4.87, and then a month later, 6.37. Pretty unremarkable history, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Um, imaging showed his brachytherapy seeds and an, a single um, enlarged lymph node at the uh, right external iliac fossa. This is a CT scan showing this enlarged node. You can see there's a pretty big one. Um, 
this is just a, another view of the CT. He underwent repeat transrectal ultrasound guided prostate biopsies, and they were all benign and showing treatment effect. He underwent a plucyclovine or aximan PET scan um, that showed intensely increased activity in the area of this enlarged nodes and no increased activity in the prostate and no other sides, signs of lymphadenopathy. Here's an image. You can see the bladder lighting up down in the inferior portion of the image and then that very hot lymph node on the right. Here's the uh, axial scan showing that very hot lymph node exactly in the spot of that enlarged node on the regular CT scan. He was advised by the outside urologist that ADT was his next uh, step, but he was opposed to hormone therapy. When he had had it when he was 54 with his brachytherapy, he was really miserable. So he came to us for a second opinion. We know that the biochemical recurrence rate, uh, especially with this young African-American man with, with grade four plus four cancer and half of his biopsies, is gonna have a high risk of, of recurrence. His options are androgen deprivation therapy, which is the standard, but we know that has some um, undesirable side effects, especially in young men, uh, will progress to castration-resistant disease, um, and uh, significant cardiac toxicity in the long-term cardiovascular disease in this guy that's already got some hypertension and hyperlipidemia. You can do intermittent therapy to minimize the symptoms, uh, which is a nice option in some of these fellows. There's salvage radiation therapy, salvage ablation, such as cryotherapy. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is set the salvage lymph node dissection option. Lymph node metastases have a more favorable outcome than METs to other organs or to bone. Uh, in long-term follow-up studies, there's good cancer-specific survival in patients that had limited node-positive disease after prostatectomy, even without uh, hormone therapy and removal of the nodes may have a beneficial impact on uh, cancer progression and it can at least delay the need for androgen deprivation therapy. This is a nice um, diagram of where nodes tend to be shown on um, uh, imaging studies after um, radical prostatectomy. And there've been several, several articles in the literature um, in the radiolo radiology literature telling where these nodes are distributed. But this is a nice diagram from the Rigotti paper that's almost 10 years old, and the rates of those nodes are pretty much the same even in the most recent uh, publications. The vast majority of nodes are in the pelvis. Now, where some number are up higher in the retroperitoneum? Um, salvage lymph node dissection after primary therapy has been purported to prolong recurrence-free survival and delay systemic therapy. But to be able to pull that off, you need um, imaging, very efficient imaging to identify these nodes, to even know what to take out. And we know traditional CT and MRI have low sensitivity. So let's talk about imaging for a little bit. Um, PET-CT uh, has been a tremendous benefit to us in cancer imaging. The old standard is FDG. PET, which we use for a lot of our imaging uh, in urology for metastases. Other options are the F18 fluoroethylcholine, 11-carbon acetate, 11-carbon choline. Then the last two are the ones, the last three really are the ones that are used a lot in this recurrent prostate cancer space. The 11-carbon choline, the 18-fluorofluocyclovine or axamen, and the 68 gallium PSMA, or the prostate-specific membrane antigen. Um, the Aximan scan, um, it's our favorite here. It was um, developed right down the road at Emory from us, so it's one we've had available for longer. Sensitivity of 58%, specificity for 81%. Um, it's easy to handle. It has a fairly prolonged T1 half um, before the isotope starts breaking down, so you um, scheduling and things like that is a lot easier with it. The prostate-specific membrane antigen isotope is probably more accurate. 55% uh, detection with very low PSAs and up to 76% uh, detection in PSAs of, one to, of, of 0.5 to 1. 
and can detect fairly small nodes. Uh, the limitations, however, it's got a short half-life. You really have to take it right from the cyclotron where it was created to the patient uh, with a 20-minute half-life. Half so you, you have to have an on-site cyclotron, which not a lot of sites have that. Um, an international study of um, recurrent prostate cancer patients which just recently came out compared the 11 choline to the PSMA in 641. And basically all of the patients, uh, th these patients ultimately went on to have a salvage node dissection and they compared those results to those two imaging techniques and found that across the board, the PET CT scans underestimated the burden of nodal disease. Um, the PSMA um, study was associated with a lower rate of underestimated in the low PSA range, less than 1.5, but in the higher ranges, there was no benefit of the PSMA over the choline imaging. Another potential option is diffusion-weighted MRI with ultra-small particles of iron oxide. These have a high sensitivity, are easy to see on MRI, but are really not very useful in the salvage situation since you have to inject the primary lesion to get uptake. Similarly, there's um, several technetium labeled colloids that you can inject right into the prostate and then see where it goes in the nodes, as well as a hybrid of ICG, that's endocyanide green. Some of y'all may be familiar with that. We already use it in urology in um, some people use it for partial nephrectomies to during a robotic partial uh, nephrectomy to determine the edge of the cancer versus the the edge of the um, normal kidney using the fluoro option on on the robot so that's something that we have used um, and so there's a hybrid of icg and technetium nanocolloid that you can view intraoperatively, but all of those require injection to the primary tumor. The, um, here's an example of um, intraoperative intraprostatic injection that um, shows up on robotically from with the green in the fluoro. But a very nice paper a few years ago from Penn showed that you could actually give it in the salvage situation um, a day prior to the node dissection and still get uptake in metastatic nodes. And that's the image I've shown you here from that paper. Um, and of course, I know you're all sitting there saying, well, that giant node, I wouldn't need it to be bright green to be able to dissect that out. But um, I think it would be helpful for most more subtle nodes. Um, this is another technique. This is people with nodal disease after radical prostatectomy that had uptake on PSMA PET. And they had an IV injection about 48 hours prior to salvage node detection, dissection of uh, indium labeled PSMA. They underwent a repeat scan about 24 hours prior to lymph node dissection to be sure there was uptake in the lymph nodes. And then underwent lymph node dissection. Um, and they had a gamma probe intraoperatively to measure the isotope. Um, and, and guide their dissection. Even with all that, the sensitivity and specificities weren't amazing. Um, th there was still a fair number of uh, tumors that were missed and a fair number that were um, positive, that were detected and called positive on the imaging that were negative. So um, a lot of problems with that. Future imaging with uh, prostate statistic fluorescent compounds are being developed, such as uh, this Y27, which is a near infrared fluorophore targeted to the PSMA, and um, antibiotics, antibodies against uh, prostate stem cell antigen that fluoresce. So we'll see if new things come out with time. Salvage node dissection should be considered a fairly experimental treatment option for prostate cancer with nodal recurrence. After primary treatment failure, there's a lack of current guidelines 
The main aims of the procedure is to delay further cancer recurrence and postpone use of systematic treatments. And that's very important when you're counseling patients that might be a candidate for this, that have this single node that takes up um, the isotope on your PET scan of whatever type you're using, that, that all we're doing probably is delaying their hormone therapy. We're not try, going for a cure here and they must understand that because um, you know, even though some of the authors that are publishing about this say that there is a chance you can cure it, um, I certainly wouldn't make any promises to a patient. There's a nice um, review article in European Urology from about five years ago, looking at all of the studies that have published on salvage lymph node dissection. Uh, most of them are very small series. There's a few larger ones there. Um, and the more recent ones have gotten more and more careful about their patient selection too. Overall, 40 to 80% of patients achieved a bio, complete biochemical response out of salvage lymph node dissection, and that would be defined as a PSA less than two. Reaching a complete biochemical response was a significant predictor of, of whether their cancer would progress later. Preoperative, and I mean pre-salvage lymph node dissection, uh, preoperative uh, predictors of a favorable biochemical response after the salvage lymph node dissection or a PSA less than four, um, a greater time from the ra radical prostatectomy to the biochemical recurrence, node negative at the time of the, the prostatectomy, no retroperitoneal uptake on the PET-CT, and no more than one to three areas of nodal uptake. Most patients invariably progressed to biochemical recurrence despite an initial biochemical response. Uh, the median time is about 18 months. Depending on the author, there's a nine to 31% biochemical uh, recurrence free survival at five years. One group has um, um, three of 13 patients with complete remission at seven years and talk about a cure. I'm not sure that's possible, but it's interesting. Um, so a clinical recurrence, not just a PSA recurrence, is a positive PET after lymph node dissection and um, with a rising PSA. And there's a 35 to 50% clinical recurrence-free survival at five years. Um, post-operative predictors, post-operative meaning after salvage lymph node dissection. Predictors of clinical recurrence are pathologic nodes in the retroperitoneum, a higher number of positive nodes, or incomplete PSA response to salvage lymph node dissection. Uh, complications, you know, it's not completely benign. Um, there's been no mortalities reported. Um, the patients have a fever, lymphorrhea, DVT, uh, basically anything you would think would be um, a risk of your lymph node dissection that you performed at the time of your prostatectomy, lymphocele wound infection and required surgical intervention. And several people have also published this list of complications and it's fairly consistent among the uh, publications. There's been a, a nice pool data um, of 654 men that underwent uh, salvage lymph node dissection. Now, many of these were also among the 200 or so were in, that were in that review in 2015. So some of it is carryover, but this does include some US sites and um, some other very experienced salvage lymph node dissection surgeons. Um, this publication said that 25% had within one year a PSA recurrence. Um, early recurrence was significantly associated with an increased risk of three-year cancer-specific mortality, uh, with 20% cancer-specific mortality in those with early recurrence, and 1.4% uh, in those that didn't have a recurrence. So for salvage lymph node dissection, your ideal patient is a young, healthy patient with prostatectomy path stage of T2, Gleason score less than seven, PSA less than four, castrate-sensitive disease. I don't know how you do that if you haven't given them hormones already, but that's one of the listed recommendations. A low lymph node burden, 
Um, various authors give various recommendations, but I, they, they pretty much agree less than three sites. It must be limited to the pelvis. Um, your PSA shouldn't be contaminated by having given, already given hormone therapy and a longer time between the radical prostatectomy and the detectable PSA. What about our patient? He had brachytherapy. So he doesn't really fit into any of these categories, um, but he's young. His um, path was T2, his Gleason score was a little high, and his PSA is now six and a half. Um, he's only got one site. Um, so, and it's been um, nine years since he had his brachytherapy. So we gave it a try. Again, this is his PET scan, his Eximin scan, showing you where that node is. Here's a robotic view. You can see nice uh, friendly pelvis there. You can see the arrow is pointing out that node that's bulging as we're dissecting it out here. There it is, really obvious node. It wasn't that subtle. Um, uh, final path was metastatic prostate cancer involving one of 10 lymph nodes. So that big honking node was the only one he had. We also dissected the nodes on the other side. We didn't get a very extensive dissection, but of the five nodes we got, uh, none had cancer in them. And this is what happened with him. Uh, his PSA initially pre-op went from 6.3 over uh, the next nine months down to 0.02. Um, stayed there for a little while, but at 18 months, it popped back up to 0.3. And again, that was the, um, mean recurrence time in the previously published studies as well. So he's following that trend exactly. At two years, his PSA was up to 2.23. Imaging at this point is negative, but we went ahead and started androgen deprivation therapy and abiaterone. And that was just three months ago. He's just recently um, started that treatment. So what other, did we do the wrong thing? What are the other options? Um, our options include um, um, observation. Maybe we could have just watched him longer. His PSA was six and a half and he had a big node that would be pretty risky, but um, looking at the STOMP trial, you may have heard of this trial, um, 62 patients were randomized to observation or treatment of the MET. So unfortunately only six of those got salvaged lymph node dissection 25 got radiation therapy to the metastatic sites. And they were followed for a median of three years. The median time to PSA progression was six months for the surveillance group compared to 10 months for the patients who underwent treatment of their metastases. ADT was started for radiographic progression or worsening symptoms. The ADT-free survivor was longer after the metastatic disease had been treated, a mean of 21 months, compared to 13 months in their surveillance group. What about going ahead and doing ADT? Um, should we have not even bothered with a salvage lymph node dissection and just gone straight to ADT as his uh, outside urologist had mentioned? Um, there is uh, one study that compared salvage lymph node dissection directly with ADT. Um, there were 23 patients who underwent node dissection and 22 who had ADT for lymph node only recurrence after prostatectomy. The mean PSA reduction was higher after salvage lymph node dissection than ADT. The clinical groups were not significant, the clinical outcomes were not significantly different between the two groups, but there was a trend toward longer time to biochemical recurrence, 13.3 versus six months in the salvage node dissection. The salvage node dissection group had 13.3 months and the ADT group had six months and radiographic evidence with 21.1 uh, months for the salvage lymph node dissection group and 14.2 months for the ADT group. These differences didn't meet, meet um, statistical significance, but um, are certainly important trends to know. Then if we compare, there has been one direct comparison of salvage node dissection to salvage node radiation. This was not a very good study, but it's the only head-to-head -head, uh, comparison out there. They had 67 patients who underwent uh, radiation therapy to the nodes and 33 that underwent salvage lymph node dissection for pelvic or periaortic lymph node recurrences after radical prostatectomy. 
the RT group had higher stage and margin rates at radical prostatectomy and higher PSAs at the time of salvage treatment. The LIFNO group had higher rates of PSA persistence after radical prostatectomy. The distribution and number of lymph nodes on imaging was the same for both groups. 88% of the RT group started ADT, and that's why I don't think this is a good study because sort of your PSA data goes out the window then, with 25% of those continuing it for two years. And 54% received additional radiation therapy to the prostate fossa. So we're really comparing apples and oranges here a bit. But the two-year biochemical recurrence-free survival was significantly higher in the RT group than the, um, with lower rates of starting ADT. But of course, they had a lot of patients that were actually on RDT, uh, ADT already. And, uh, but, so I, I don't know that we can make any um, big conclusions about the recurrence, biochemical recurrence rate or the starting to ADT. However, the RT group did have lower rates of distant metastases. So that is a bit concerning and may actually suggest that RT to those nodes is um, more beneficial to the surgery. But again, there were a lot of uh, issues with this paper. I'm not sure I'm ready to believe that yet. In conclusion, salvage node dissection is a viable treatment option to delay clinical progression and postpone hormone therapy in those patients with a low node uh, burden that really want to avoid starting hormone therapy. Uh, patient sele selection criteria are still a little up in the air, but I think we've got a much better um, idea based on some of the literature. Um, imaging techniques tend to be the, the crux of the matter. If you know what nodes to take out, you've got a better chance, or if you know how extensive the disease is, and if the patient's a true candidate for salvage load, node dissection, your success is gonna be better. And of course, there's a possible role for a multimodal approach, and that hasn't been looked at, but I think that's probably where we're going in the future. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Terrace. Um, that was a great review of kind of previous and up-to-date literature um, on salvage uh, lymph node dissection. There was one comment um, during the talk. It was by one of our medical oncologists, Dr. Chuck Drake, who was just mentioning that for the PYL PSMA PET... Um, oh, Dr. Drake, are you here? Yeah, I'm on, actually. Oh, that was awesome. a, that was a, I can talk if you want. I mean, I mean that was a sure. great talk, actually, and, and I think that... Um, you know, the idea of uh, doing a salvage dissection is, is certainly um, probably very reasonable in some cases. And I think you know, that, that um, the imaging technology that will be FDA approved by the end of the year is not gallium-68. I doubt it, actually. Gallium-68 is Betty Crocker. It's actually when you, like, make the uh, isotope yourself in the back room, and then you take it in and image it. And it's, there's variability, uh, as, as the data you showed, actually. Um, the, the agent that'll be approved probably is, is PYL PET. It's actually um, a more stable um, reagent. It comes from a company called Progenics. We're doing a trial here at Columbia. We've already imaged greater, more than 80 patients. In studies of this age, uh, agent at other places, including Hopkins, they showed us specificity and sensitivity much, much higher that, that, than you showed for gallium-68. That is, in one study, there was a, a for, for PSA greater than, than one or two, the specificity was greater than 90, sometimes even 95%. I think that what you showed is exactly exactly super important, right? Because what's going to happen is if that uh, if that technology gets approved, and we think it will be, what will happen is people who have rising PSAs, like you showed, are going to get imaged, right? And right. You see juicy lymph nodes um, often because that's where prostate cancer goes. And then this question is going to come up, actually. So um, I was wondering if you have any experience with that other imaging technology with PYL um, or any availability uh, in, in your area. No, we don't. Like I said, you know, we're, we, we're um, mostly doing Aximin now um, because it was, you know, developed by our neighbors over at Emory and it's so easy to handle, but that's a great one that we can, that we'll certainly look into when that gets FDA approved. Um, another question, uh, Dr. Chairs, we had are uh, related to the criteria um, of starting hormone therapy for those who have uh, nodal disease, but those that you're not going to do a salvage lymph node dissection on. Yeah, that's a good one, you know, and, and that's what the STOMP trial was all about, right? Was, was, do you even need to do anything for these? Do you, can you, um, 
just watch them. And um, the criteria there for starting hormone therapy in patients that had, had, had um, been randomized to the observation arm was progression um, of disease radiographically or symptoms. They didn't use PSA alone as a indicator to start ADT. And I think that's reasonable when you've got uh, just nodal disease. Right. And then in, um, in those who have nodal, clinically nodal disease prior to um, any intervention, uh, and given the benefits of salvage pelvic lymph node sections, what are your thoughts about prostatectomy plus pelvic lymph nodes as an initial therapy option? Yeah, I, uh, you, you know, I think we're going more and more that direction. I, I'm not a big believer in it. I think those people also are going to fail um, and end up on hormone therapy or, or ultimately uh, if it's very bulky. I do think when you have this incidental focus of cancer in a lymph node dissection that you do at the time of prostatectomy, you've probably done those people a favor. But if it's bulky enough that you could detect it on preoperative imaging, I'm not sure about that as far as disease control, but you may postpone hormone therapy. Um, then the next question is, what, what about their local disease? And we know that you do save some of these young patients with bad local disease. You save them from getting into trouble with urinary retention and other problems down the road by going ahead with prostatectomy, but you may end up with incontinence and, and some other problems that they may find undesirable. So it's hard. You've got to really spend time advising those patients. I think it's not a, an easy across the board answer for that one. Sure. Oh, that makes sense. Um, so it seems like that as far as questions um, um, that we don't have any more right now, but I want to get the case uploaded for you. So I'm just going to start sharing my screen and then we have um one of the pathologists here from Columbia, as well as a radiologist who will go through the case with everyone. So give me one second, uh, see if I can, okay. So Dr. Terrence, this is, um, this is a patient uh, that we wanted to go over with you. Um, it's a 62 year old male, uh, history of ulcerative colitis, had a subtotal colectomy and um, a J pouch. Um, over 30 years ago. Yeah, that, at that time was complicated by a bladder and prosthetic injury, uh, subsequently developed a recto urethrorectal prosthetic fistula. He had an attempted repair, a transperineal fistula repair in 1990, uh, which failed. Uh, he noted recurrence of fecal urea and pneumaturia uh, beginning in 1998 and really lived with that for many, many years. Then in early 2019, he underwent cystolithopaxy, also had a prostatic stone that was treated. This was complicated by postoperative retention. He failed multiple trial avoids and ultimately a uh, suprapubic tube was placed for him. But during that cystoscopic and radiographic workup, he had what appeared to be one, if not two, uh, fistula arising from like the right side of the prostatic urethra at the level of the veru. And he did undergo a green light uh, laser uh, vaporization of the prostate for obstructing prostate and simultaneously a pouchoscopy uh, at that time, which is notable for a very narrow um, ileal pouch anal anastomosis um, from his previous surgery. So he was advised to have a fecal diversion prior to repair of the newly found fistula, but he refused. Ultimately, in November of last year, he underwent a repair of a rectal urethral fistula, uh, a urethroplasty. He had a gracilis interposition flap, uh, had some of his prostate removed, and a rectal uh, strictroplasty. Um, ultimately, his post-op was complicated by a rectal leak, sepsis. He had to go undergo an emergent washout and lupuliostomy creation. Um, Postoperatively, um, he had a cysto uh, as well as a gastrograph and enema in February that showed no obvious leak or stricture. But about two weeks ago, he started noticing recurrence of pneumaturia. He's having foul smelling mucus for rectum. 
Just of note, his pathology of that prostatic tissue um, in November was consistent with um, uh, basaloid uh, features, um, carcinoma with basaloid features. So Dr. Berg, are you with us uh, right now? Yes, I am here. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'd just like to introduce Dr. Virg. She's one of our um, uh, pro uh, assistant professors of pathology uh, here at Columbia, and she's going to be going over um, the pathology with us, um, Dr. Terrace, uh, with regards to this prostate specimen that was removed um, during the operation. Hi, so um, in pathology lab, we received two pieces, two centimeter and 1.5 centimeter of prostate tissue. And uh, both tissue were occupied by this tumor. And as you see on the left, in the left image, prostate urethral lining is on the surface. This is the low power magnification of the tumor to show the extent of the tumor. And, and you see that little bit of the space between, uh, below the epithelium is uninvolved. Rest of the space or prostatic tissue is occupied by the tumor. And on the right side, you can see the uh, blue color on the uh, image that shows the deepest part of the uh, tissue. And as you can see, the tumor is occupying the whole depth of the tissue submitted to us. Uh, and uh, I would say more than 90% of tissue submitted to the lab was uh, involved by this tumor. Next slide, please. Now, this is the medium power magnification of this tumor to show the growth patterns of tumor. On the left side image, it shows a big uh, uh, nodule of the tumor with uh, spaces in between the tumor proliferation and there is palisading of nuclei towards the periphery of this large nest. Now, this is called cribriform growth pattern. And, and as you can see, the stroma in between these uh, uh, group of blue cells, the stroma is pale. This is not the normal stroma for prostate tissue. Prostate has fibromuscular stroma, where we see here is the pale stroma, which is called the desmoplastic reaction here. And I'm telling you because it's important towards the diagnosis of this lesion. Whereas the image on the right side, uh, right side shows the, uh, these the small nest of uh, tumor cells, as well as we see some spaces which are lined by these tumor cells. Next slide, please. Now this is the highest magnification to show the tumor cells and their basaloid morphology. In pathology, basaloid morphology means that most of the cell is composed of this blue nucleus. So these tumor has a very blue appearance when we see them at low power of magnification. And we can see here these punched out spaces or cribriform growth pattern. And within these spaces is this pale pink material. And again, we can see a little bit of stroma in between these tumor groups or uh, tumor islands. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and we confirmed the basaloid nature of these uh, tumor cells by performing immunostains. And uh, on the left side, a CK5 immunostain is diffusely expressed by these tumor cells, whereas P63 is positive in the, periphery, uh, in the peripheral cells seen on the right side. Uh, next slide, or maybe I think this is the last. Uh, so uh, this is a very unusual or very rare tumor of the prostate composed entirely of basaloid cells. Uh, we, in, in prostate, we can see basal cell hyperplasia versus uh, basal cell tumor. And it's, it's, sometimes it's a very challenging uh, differential, but here going by the extent of the growth, altered stroma and cribriform architecture, it's consistent with basal cell carcinoma prostate. Thank you, Dr. Virk, very much. Um, hey, Dr. Can we ask some questions yes. of Dr. Virk uh, while we're at it? Sure. Or maybe, um, um, when you look at this pathologically, help us understand why, um, you know, if you look at the case reports of the literature, it's whether this is an indolent yeah. uh, mass or is this an aggressive tumor? And, you know, they're all over the map on, yeah. um, on, uh, in the case reports uh, there, whether it's indolent or, uh, or aggressive. Is there any way for you to make an assessment about, about the aggressiveness of this uh, tumor. And then second, why, why do you see in prostate cancer loss of the basal layer and basal cells? And, and you know, the more different, poorly differentiated tumors. So, so I, I, how is this a malignancy and loss of basal cells in the Gleason 7 prostate cancer I'm confused. Okay. How is this a base? How is this a carcinoma? Right. 
So, so first of all, so the, uh, to answer your first question, what are the aggressive features of prostate basal cell carcinoma, which can predict aggressive behavior? Yeah. Uh, as, I, as you said, that it's all over the place in the literature. And I also went over liter pathology literature. There are not many papers. The largest series was of about nine, 29 patients. And they showed that this cribriform pattern is one of the features that can predict aggressiveness. But again, there, there are no definite features. Uh, other features that has been shown in literature are perineural invasion, lymphovascular invasion. I didn't see it. But this is the transitional zone of the prostate. There might not be many nerves in this area to show perineural invasion. Another one more histologic feature that can predict uh, uh, aggressive behavior is solid large nest of tumor with central necrosis. Uh, again, that was not present in this case. But it, as you see that in this case, tumor cells are present at the margin. So I don't know what is left behind in the patient. Um, to answer your second question, why is it cancer? Yes, so, so there are two types of cancer here, prostate acinar adenocarcinoma and prostate basal cell carcinoma. So in normal prostate epithelium, we have two layer of cells. One is the, uh, um, it's called acinar cells and they are facing the lumen and those are the cells responsible for making prostate secretions. Whereas we have the basal cells and they are at the outer side of these uh, glandular cells or acinar cells. So when we have, uh, uninterrupted proliferation of SNR cells, there is no proliferation of basal cells, and that results in SNR prostate carcinoma. Whereas when we have only basal cell proliferation, it, it results in basal cell adenocarcinoma. So thank you. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Uh, um, Mia, do you want to um, move to the... So how would you... No, just in conclusion. You would say based on the cribriform uh, pattern, but there's no uh, LBI uh, or perineural invasion. So it's kind of in the middle, right. as far as you're concerned. It's a, it's kind of gray zone kind of yes. thing. All right, thank you. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Dr. Berg. So we'll have Dr. Shesh, one of our radiologists, just quickly go over um, imaging as well. If you don't mind, Dr. Shesh, are you there with us? Yes, I'm here. Awesome. So Dr. Shesh is uh, one of our assistant professor of radiology, uh, Dr. Terrace, um, and he works very closely with us, um, especially in our tour board setting. Um, here, I'll leave hey. it to you, Dr. Shesh. Okay, so this was a, uh, these are two images from a prostate MRI, which was performed at an outside hospital in February of 2019, which we were made, avail were made available recently. On the left, we see a T2 axial weighted image. On the right, we see a diffusion-weighted image, and what we see is uh, in the center of the image is the, the transition zone of the prostate. Behind it, you see the two seminal vesicles. There's a Foley catheter going right through the middle, and if you, I want you to look at the left half of the transition zone. Uh, Miad, can you, that's the, well, yes, that's the patient left, so look at the patient's right. Mm -hmm. Yep, so that area there you can see is slightly more bright on T2, that geographic area, and it's bulging a little bit. That's very, very abnormal. And on the uh, corresponding diffusion-weighted image on the right, you can see that it's very high signal. So that would be, I, I don't know how this was read on the outside. This would be called a uh, Pyrats 5 lesion, which uh, would be highly consistent with uh, clinically significant prostate cancer. It is unusual, though, for a prostate cancer to be this T2 bright. Usually they're charcoal dark. So this is, this is a little funky looking. It doesn't look like a typical um, prostate cancer that we see. Okay. So, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so actually this MRI, which was also done at the outside uh, more recently in March, was actually done using a perianal fistula protocol because of the patient's uh, uh, complications. And um, when we read it initially, actually, it was read as a, as a perianal fistula. But right now, uh, you can, I mean, it looks like a bomb went off in this patient's prostate, really. We don't really see a well-defined prostate gland uh, the very T2 bright stuff in the back there posteriorly is actually part of the fistula. But if you recall that uh, signal of the uh, of the tumor on the previous MRI, we now see that all throughout the middle of where the prostate is, especially on the on the image on the right. You can see it's encasing the uh, the uh, full the catheter there. Uh, go to the other image, Miad, with your mouse. Yep. So you can see there's that kind of intermediate T2 signal, kind of bright all throughout where the prostate gland should be. 
Um, and that's, that's all tumor. That's a huge tumor. Uh, we don't really understand, you know, what happened in the interim. I mean, there was a, a simple prostatectomy. Uh, we don't know what would have happened had there not been a prostatectomy. It's possible that that surgery kind of messed up the borders of the tumor. And, and now this is what's there. Um, but certainly just based on this, you can see it looks like significant progression of, of the tumor. Thanks, Dr. Shish. Um, uh, I just want to ask uh, Hiram a question. Uh, he had a gastrographin enema out of interest. Uh, you know, he still has his lupulasmi. He had a gastrographin enema on Friday. And the report uh, is that it's, it's, it looks normal. Uh, do you see uh, a fistula here or what's more definitive? He has a gastrographin enema that's like normal. Yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're complementary studies, really. Uh, the the gastrographin enema is a fluoroscopic study. Um, it's, it's a dynamic study, so we can inject contrast and view in real time where the contrast is going. Um, sometimes small fistulas may not opacify with the enema. The MRI show, has exquisite soft tissue details, so we can see small tracks. Um, so they should be used complementary. I, I'd have to, I, I didn't review the images for purposes of the, of the fistula. I'd sure. like to look at them side, side by side, and then I'd you know, be able to offer you more, more information on that. But they're, they're not, there is no, neither one of them is better than the other. They're complementary. So, the, so the tumor looks to you as extra, you know, at the time of surgery, just so everyone knows, the, I, I saw the fistula in the, in the middle uh, to distal part of the prostate. And when we went to close the fistula, there was a big nodule that was like, I could see through, uh, through the fistula tract uh, that was at the fistula tract. And he had some, uh, you know, voiding dysfunction. So I could see this big, you know, nodule the size of a, a thumbnail or more. So I just excised it while I was there to help me to close the fistula tract. But this was, this nodule that I took out was in the, the fistula tract. Uh, uh, and and the capsule of the prostate, at least at the time of surgery, looked very smooth and normal. You know, essentially, we did the approach was like a perineal prostatectomy, and closed it, and it looked very nice and smooth, and it didn't look extra prosthetic at the time. It's just that the, this tumor was in the fistula tract, and then we interlaid a, a gracilis uh, uh, muscle. So there's muscle now be, uh, between the prostate and the, the J pouch. So. And the surgery was, was what date? Uh, two or three months ago. Uh, I think uh, in December or something like that. No, no. When was it? Uh, November. November. So six months ago. Okay. Bef before this MRI though. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, the, he's had pretty extensive surgery down there in the pelvis with his ulcerative colitis, the pouch, and now this the gracilis flap. So I think it's going to be very difficult to be certain about that. Um, like I said at the beginning, his prostate looks horrible in general. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say how much of that is from just from the surgeries uh, or how much of that is from is from the this tumor it's it's on this on these images it looks like it's outside the capsule especially if you look at the right image um the right side of the prostate uh the you know the right of the other image yeah 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 so that right there right where the mouth yeah right there that whole tissue doesn't look encapsulated it looks like it's abutting the levator uh on the right there that's the black line on the right so that looks like it's outside where the prostate would be. But again, he had a simple prostatectomy. It's very unclear from the image. In fact, the original radiologist who read this, didn't, who didn't have the history, didn't even know that the patient had a prostatectomy, didn't know that the patient had a tumor anywhere. It was just, you know, it, it looks, it's such a abnormal appearance of this area on his prostate that it's just very difficult. So with this information, um, it, you know, it's going to be more difficult to say whether there's true extraprostatic extension or this is all post or, or there's some post-surgical change and disruption of, of you know, of the uh, fascial planes. It's just, it's hard. But from these images, just looking at these images, to me, it looks like there's gross tumor, at least on the right side posteriorly, that's outside the prostate. Okay. 
Hey, Miyad, we're going to run out of time. Uh, yeah. uh, Marta, are you still there, Dr. Terry? Yeah, so... Um, what do you think we should do and uh, what's the next step and what should we tell the patient? Should we do biopsy, you know, transrectal right. biopsy? So what should, uh, what should we tell him? He, he's a relatively healthy 63-year-old. He, he, he's a young 63-year-old. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, aside from the ulcerative colitis, he doesn't have really any medical problems. Yeah, yeah I mean, these... Um... I mean, you know better than I do that the one reason that fistulas keep recurring is cancer, right? So um, I think he needs more complete staging. Uh, so I'd get full abdominal imaging and, um, and a bone scan. Um, the basaloid can metastasize to the bone. So that would be something just to be sure we know how bad of a disease we're dealing with. Um, I see one case report of it having uptake on FDG PET. So that might be something to get to see what kind of disease we're, we're dealing with. But uh, uh, you know me, I mean, I would say pelvic exempts what this guy needs and just two stomas. Um, um, you know, you could do it with, um, without a new bowel anastomosis. So plug the ureters into his existing ileostomy and bring the other and, you know, and then divide the ileum just above that and bring it over to the other side so that his recovery is faster. Um, but, you know, this is a pretty bad actor. I think you got to stage him up and then, then make a decision to, to do a big surgery. I think his fistulae are never going to stop recurring with that kind of tumor down there. No, that's very helpful. Let's say he refuses a pelvic exam. He's a he's he's a nice guy, but he's a little kooky uh, personality, uh, not realistic. Uh, he's childlike. Yeah, uh, boy, uh, you're really so limited. So I, I mean, see see people have given <laughs> docetaxel for basaloid. I don't know that the results have been very good. Uh, certainly, wouldn't want to give pelvic radiation to somebody with ulcerative colitis in a J pouch. That sounds and fistulae. That sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. Um, I would talk to your medical oncology people, but I don't think you've got a lot of options there. There have been people that have tried hormone therapy, but it's not really that hormonally responsive, I don't think. I'd have to really do a, a better literature review on it, such a rare tumor. Yeah, hi, hi. Thank you so much. And this is Dr. Stein from Medical Oncology. You know, right. you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, hormonal therapy has not really been shown to be particularly useful in this, uh, in this setting. Um, there was one case report of a BRCA-related basaloid, so you know we will certainly look for that. But um, for the most part, these are not responsive to chemotherapy either. And we um, can try to do some other things like um, single cell sequencing, and then or you know RNA profiling, and then try to you know some fancy algorithms here to maybe see if there's a particular drug that might work for his specific tumor based on some predictive algorithms, but I, I worry that that ultimately won't be curative. Um, you know, I pretty much right, no matter what drug we give him, ultimately this one is likely to, uh, to, to develop. Um, so, you know, I, I think we probably should discuss exenteration, but I, I don't want to bias the conversation in that, in that direction. Yeah, I think that's where you're headed ultimately. What is uh what is everyone else uh, vote uh, here uh, is uh, any of our uh, uh, oncologists uh, and uh, maybe Chuck if you're still on the line what do you vote for, Dr. Drake? Did we lose him? Uh, we lost his interest. Ah, all right. Uh, he's he's kind of ADD anyway, so we lost his interest. Uh, all right, is is uh, Chris Anderson? I saw you meant a comment. What do you think, Chris? Uh, yeah, hey, I'm here. Um, what do you think we should do? What's the uh, answer? Just, just just out of curiosity, how <laughs> what makes you what makes you lean towards exempt as opposed to prostatectomy? Is there a reason that you would have to take this guy's bladder out? Other than, I mean, him he would likely be incontinent. Um, well, that and the fact that he's got all these fistulas, I think that, that, um, that he's just, uh, uh, set up to develop an even worse fistula after prostatectomy. 
because you've got an anastomosis there on top of a um, very diseased colon. And I'm not convinced from this MRI that this tumor isn't actually invading into the wall of that septum a little bit. Um, that may be all just inflammatory reaction from the from the prior fistula repair, but it would be very difficult getting the prostate off of that rectum. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dr. Terrace, thank you. I mean, in in for just respect of everyone's time, um, and because we have an eight o'clock speaker, I'd like to just thank you so much um, for joining us for this Empire series. Thank you all for. Uh, contributing, um, and it was amazing discussion uh, across disciplines. So I, I think we're really fortunate to ha hopefully be able to continue this kind of platform and this virtual um, uh, visiting professor type experience to uh, until we can actually invite you back. But Dr. Harris, thank you again. Um, and thank you everyone, Dr. Burke, Dr. Shesh, Dr. Brandis, uh, for being a part of this. Um, if thank anyone- you, Martha. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate the invitation. Thank I'll be you. careful. Next time we'll we'll do it in person. Great.